Blog Talk Radio. everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday. It is January the 15th, 2021, and here we are, the final days of the administration of President Donald J. Trump, and um, we're about to witness the beginning of uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, wow. Uh, here we go. Um, there, I don't think we have ever seen America more at um, war with itself than we are today. Uh, how we got here is something we ought to talk about. I also want to talk to you today about my own background with the former Immigration and Naturalization Service, because immigration seems to be at the heart of so many of the challenges and threats that we face. It was certainly at the heart of President Trump's ability to win the office of president, <clears throat> and an issue that Joe Biden uh, has captured and gone in the polar opposite from President Trump, and, and so I, I want to provide you with some perspectives uh, that might be helpful. Uh, immigration certainly is not a single issue, as I've been saying for years, but a singular issue because it impacts just about every threat, just about every challenge that we face. That's not a statement of xenophobia, it's a statement of fact. Every house that I've ever been in has a front door that has some kind of a signaling mechanism, a peephole, a doorbell, it has locks. The idea is that strangers are supposed to knock on your door and ask permission, may I come in? The only exception, of course, law enforcement with a warrant. But other than that, you have an absolute right to deny anybody you want entry into your home. That is your decision. It's kind of sovereignty, but on the most personal level. Similarly, countries have the right to deny entry to non-citizens at will. Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, is a very important section of law. I urge all of you, after the program, either go to Google, God help us all, Google. Pretty soon they'll probably block this also. Go to a web search and look up Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182. It addresses the categories of aliens who are to be excluded from the United States. It also includes Section F, which grants the President of the United States sole authority at his or her discretion to prevent the entry of all aliens or any aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants for as long a period of time as he or she, meaning the President, may deem necessary if he or she determines that the entry of such aliens into the country would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. I'm not reading the law verbatim, but those are the elements of the law that the president may, if he or she believes the entry of any alien or class of aliens or all aliens would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, block their entry for as long a period of time, either as immigrants or non-immigrants, as long as the president believes that this is essential for the best interest of the United States. Nothing could be clearer. When President Trump invoked that section of law <clears throat> at the beginning of his, his administration, if I can get the words out, <clears throat> He did so not out of bigotry, but out of concern that as commander-in-chief of our armed forces, as president of the United States, and as the official 
to whom all federal law enforcement answers. Um, he wasn't doing it out of xenophobia. I can't speak for Donald Trump. But if you look at his words, if you look at the statements, if you look at the congressional hearings where I've testified, if you look at the cases that I've worked on, it is clear. In fact, Lou Barletta, when he was a congressman, quoted me at a hearing. It was kind of fun watching Lou. I helped him. He was the mayor of Hazleton, um, and he was the first mayor to enact immigration ordinances because a Dominican drug gang set up shop in his uh, city. They hadn't had a murder in years, and suddenly they had a couple of homicides within a matter of a couple of months. And when he went to the Bush White House, both sides of the aisle do not want open, do not want closed borders. Let's get this straight. Democrats and Republicans alike want to do nothing to stop the flow of foreign workers into the country because they are being bought and paid for, with a couple of exceptions, by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, by the American Immigration Lawyers Association, by various unions, by various special interest groups. This is about the displacement of American workers by foreign workers. Very simple. Very simple. Exploitation is not how you demonstrate compassion. Not for the workers and not for Americans. This is insane. This is absolutely insane. But yet this is what's going on as a matter of routine. So Lou Barletta had quoted me during a hearing where he said that if, a pound, if a, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, where terrorists are concerned, he said, I suspect that Michael Cutler, former INS senior agent, would say that where terrorists are concerned, an ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure. And that's right. And if you look at the 9-11 Commission report, and I provided testimony to the 9-11 Commission, uh, I've arrested and investigated terrorists in my career. <clears throat> Immigration was seen as the number one issue, the number one issue to protect America from attacks. The, um, there were a couple of reports prepared by the 9-11 Commission. One of those reports was the staff report that was written by the attorneys and federal agents who were assigned to work with the commission. And that report was called 9-11 and Terrorist Travel. And it went into detail about how immigration was an element of the 9-11 attacks and other terror attacks that preceded the attacks of 9-11. In fact, <clears throat> I was called to participate in my very first congressional hearing back on May 20th, 1997, four and a half years before 9-11 because of the 93 attacks in the United States. You had the CIA shot up by a Pakistani by the name of Kansi who uh, filed for political asylum, <clears throat> bought into a courier service, got a, a pass so that he could park his truck at the parking lot of the CIA, and in January 93, pulled into that parking lot early in the morning as CIA employees were reporting for duty, pulled out an AK-47, opened fire, and killed three CIA officers and, and wounded several others. The next month, we had the bombing at the Trade Center. Those aliens that all come here, all were carried out by aliens that came to the United States by one way or another, gaming flaws, vulnerabilities in the immigration system. And, in fact, the guy that rented the van that was used, the U-Haul truck that was used in the bombing of the Trade Center, was an illegal alien. He overstayed his visa. <clears throat> the guy, excuse me, I hate it when I have a frog in my throat. I hope Kermit goes away. Um, the other alien who was the ringleader of setting the bomb off was also here illegally. One guy drove it, one guy rented the van, both here illegally. And what are we doing now across the country of sanctuary states providing driver's licenses to illegal aliens? Look at the military presence in Washington. It doesn't look like Washington, D.C. There's a movie I saw when I was a kid. 
It was made back around 1951 or 1952, the day the Earth stood still, where a flying saucer lands in a park in Washington, and they mobilize the military to surround the spacecraft and surround Washington, D.C. If you watch that movie and look at footage from where Washington is today, it looks almost identical. I'm looking for the flying saucer. But the threat, I'm going to imagine, is very real. Our government doesn't resort to this drastic a tactic without good justification. And what they're warning about primarily is the potential for car bombs or truck bombs. And meanwhile, we're giving driver's licenses to people who can't prove who the hell they are. I just want you to stop and think about the enormity of this betrayal to America and Americans by idiotic governors. Um, gosh, <clears throat> there was a reason for the 9-11 Commission. It was designed to protect America so the attacks wouldn't happen again. When I was contacted by the commission, they made it clear that they wanted to call upon me to provide my perspectives because this isn't speculation. My very first fraud investigation that I did as a new agent back in 1976 caused me to trip over a terror plot in Israel. We prevented the bombing of an oil refinery and saved many lives. Immediately, it became crystal clear that there's a direct nexus between immigration and terrorism. The 9-11 Commission found that in the aggregate, 19 hijackers on 9-11 used more than 300 false identities or variations of false identities and got driver's licenses and other official documents and fake names so they could move easily around the United States and conceal their movements and perfect their plan to kill Americans, which they did. <clears throat> in fact, on 9-11, we, we lost more lives to the 19 hijackers that America lost at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, to the entire Japanese fleet. That should be stunning enough. And the death count from 9-11 is not complete. Tragically, more people continue to die almost every week, most of them first responders who put themselves in harm's way to either try to rescue people in the towers or look for human remains afterwards, working on the pile, being exposed to the toxins that were released. And, of course, the brilliant Bush administration told everybody, there's nothing to see here, folks. The air is clean. The water is fine. The attack has no effect. It's all about your day-to-day -day business. Everything is just fine. Peachy keen. So people are now dying of cancer. You wonder why the American people have trouble trusting their government? Do you really wonder? The news media is full of you-know-who, fertilizer, most of the time, unfortunately. And it's both parties. I am so sick and tired of listening to Americans criticizing each other. Oh, you're a Democrat, C-R-A-P, Democrat. And the Democrats have equally wonderful things to say about their Republican neighbors and relatives. This is a game of divide and conquer, and both parties bear lots of responsibility. Lots of responsibility. But let me start out by reading to you this simple paragraph that served as the first paragraph in the preface to that 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they are unable to enter the country. Common sense, isn't it, folks? Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining a U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. 
We believe for reasons we discussed in the following pages that it must be made one. Right off the bat, what are they telling you? If those bums couldn't have come to the country, they couldn't have killed our people. And yet when President Trump stood up and said, let's put up a border wall, the screams could be heard without turning on the TV. We're going to use high tech. We'll put up drones. We don't need that. This is a new era. Technology. Eh, Robots still don't make arrests, okay? Drones are almost worthless. They do have a mission to perform, but a study that was done by a member of the Senate who was leaving found that fewer than one-half of 1% of all arrests made on the Mexican border involved the drones. So why do they put up the drones? It's easy. It's a way of spending a lot of taxpayer money to create the illusion that they're addressing the issue of border security. It's a way of giving money to companies that fund political campaigns, perhaps, so that the money goes round and round. You give a campaign contribution, and the politician gets you a contract, so by the time you're done with it, the amount that you earn from the contract far and away is greater than the amount of money you invested in that political campaign. And believe me, it's investment. That's how you get contracts. That's how you get opportunities. That's how you get access. Trump said something interesting, and he certainly wasn't known for his eloquence. I had fits over the way that he failed to properly uh, articulate his thoughts. His Twitter account gave me fits. He was so articulate just a day or two ago when he called for peace and tranquility in America, sitting behind his desk at the Oval Office. I wish, I don't want to be the Monday morning quarterback, but I wish Donald Trump, instead of Twittering and tweeting and, and the circus act with the insults, which really rubbed me the wrong way. I voted for him, but he rubbed me the wrong way on many occasions. Let's be honest. Everyone's flawed. I've executed enough search warrants to tell you that there's no such thing as normal. We're all wacky one way or another. But if he had only sat behind that desk and had a conversation with the American people, not unlike the way that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had fireside chats from the Roosevelt Room in the White House, I think this would have been a very different story. It would have been. The the inflammatory statement that Mexico doesn't sound us their best. This wasn't about Mexico. Immigration is about people who are not citizens. The distinction that Jimmy Carter wanted to erase when he said that immigration enforcement personnel, all personnel, in fact, at the old INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, should stop using the term illegal alien to describe illegal aliens. We had to call them undocumented workers. And then he said, let's call them undocumented immigrants. I started to call them pre-citizens. Jimmy Carter ordered that we not arrest illegal aliens during the census. Why? Because most of the illegals lived in Democrat-controlled cities. The purpose of the census is the, is the apportionment of seats in the House of Representatives that, as a consequence, votes in the Electoral College. So if you could put more numbers into those Democrat strongholds, you would wind up with more members of Congress in the Democrat-controlled cities. There's always been a numbers game about power, not about representation. Not about representation. So what we saw starting with Carter was the real politicization of immigration. And look, politics comes into everything in Washington, because if you're a politician, everything is about politics. You know, if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. If you're a politician, everything is about politics, correct? So, so that's where we, we are. So you have the 9-11 Commission warning that immigration was the issue, and you have Joe Biden and everyone else calling Trump a racist, a bigot, and a xenophobe. And when the COVID virus raised its ugly head and Trump stop people from entering the United States from China. He was accused of being a bigot, a hater, a xenophobe, racist, you name it. 
<clears throat> then afterwards, of course, they said he didn't do it fast enough. He didn't become a racist fast enough, didn't become a xenophobe fast enough. I remember testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee back when the late Arlen Specter was there. And as Arlen introduced me to testify at the hearing, he rushed me to the point that I actually plucked out of my briefcase testimony from a prior hearing before a House subcommittee and had a, I was embarrassed, I had to switch um, documents. And you had the sense he really didn't want to hear what I had to say, but he knew that they had to hear from, quote, the other side, the other side. By the way, full disclosure, I'm a registered Democrat. I have been my whole life, but this is not the Democrat Party that I signed on for. Both parties have done a number on this country and on our people. And whether you like Trump or not, he was the first voice to be heard in decades to stand up for the average American. It was a strident voice. It was an irritating voice. I had issues with this stuff. But he was the only show in town because nobody else gives a rat's tail about Americans today. I remember Ted Cruz standing up there, and we, he wound up pushing me at an event because I challenged him one-on-one, and he was furious because he kept saying, for America to lead, we need to bring in the world's best and brightest. You're representing the American people. You're supposed to be looking out for what's in America's best interest, the best interests of American citizens. And you have the chutzpah to stand there and say that we need to bring in the world's best and brightest. I walked up to him. I said, Senator, come from Brooklyn. And where I come from, we have a term for the world's best and brightest. We call them Americans. And that really set him off. But it's true. When Sputnik was launched, Eisenhower didn't say we're going to call India. He said we're going to teach American kids math and science so that we remain the leaders of the world, the free world. You would think that makes sense. Corporations used to look at American students and see in those schools their future employees, but not today. Today, when corporations look at American schools, you know what they see? Consumers, people they can con into buying their garbage. Because what they really want to do is hire people from the third world who will work for one-third the wage of an average American and not expect any fringe benefits or, or even decent working condition. It's not just the illegal aliens. It's the H-1B visas. But when I started working for the INS back in 1971, I hate to admit how long ago it was, uh, some people asked me, you know, did you actually uh, have pen and paper or did you have to hammer words into a tablet with a chisel? You know, ancient times, uh, did you go to work on horseback? No, we had cars, believe it or not. We even had two-way radios, which back then was a big deal. Today we take cell phones for granted. Those two-way radios were lousy. Staticky, very often the communications didn't work. But it was the best we had. And I knew very little about immigration. I knew that my mother came as an immigrant, the head of the Holocaust. She was 13 years old and uh, lived by herself in a rooming house. I can't even imagine what she went through. Her mother couldn't get out of Poland. She died in Poland in the Holocaust. My mother would often cry at night in her sleep because she was traumatized by that experience of having to say goodbye to her mother for the last and final time at the age of 13. And she supported herself. No one was going to feed her by working in a sweatshop $3 a week making umbrellas. And today I hear this nonsense about white privilege. I want to know where my mother's share of her white privilege was. We're Americans. We're Americans. We should be privileged as Americans, but increasingly I'm feeling less privileged to be an American when I look at the chicanery and the con artistry of both political parties. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but the uh, lottery now is worth $750 million. My advice, after you listen to my podcast, 
go out, buy a ticket. Think of how many politicians you can buy for $750 million. You'd have enough money left over to buy a nice car and a nice house. But, boy, think about how many politicians you could buy. Because right now, folks, we have the best government money can buy. And if you don't have money, no one wants to hear you. That's not what Lincoln had in mind when he spoke about a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's a big con game, and we're getting the short end of the stick, both parties. You go into the voting booth, you have a choice, bad or worse. Heads, they win. Tails, we lose. Or as I said when I was asked if I was going to vote for Obama or McCain, the young lady whose show I was on at the time asked me who I was going to vote for, and I said, what a choice, cancer or a heart attack. How did we get here? Well, most Americans have ignored the issues. They've been duped. You know, they always ask the question, if a tree falls in the forest, and there's no one there to hear it, does it make the sound? The better question is, if a tree falls in the forest, but the reporters don't want to report on it, does anybody know the damn tree fell in the first place? I began my career as an immigration inspector at Kennedy Airport, and it was kind of ridiculous, the process. It's still ridiculous to an extent. We had a, a, a blue lookout book. We changed the pages periodically, and it warned about people who were convicted felons or intelligence services knew were involved with nefarious things. But I remember being supremely embarrassed one day when a group of Chinese um, diplomats came into my booth, and they were headed to the U.N., and they came on uh, what were G1 visas, G visas um, for the U.N., A visas or embassies, and I've had embassy people also. And I've had other people from other countries, but this group from Japan kind of made me feel terrible. They were very polite, very nice people. And, in fact, I ultimately, years later, got an award from the Japanese government for helping them uh, send home a Japanese woman who was involved in smuggling cocaine from the United States to Japan. I got a police medal. And, by the way, my bosses had to determine the materials it was made out of weren't worth more than $35, or I couldn't have kept it because civil servants aren't allowed to accept gifts. If you're in politics, however, well, that's a whole new story, isn't it? But long story short, they looked at that blue binders, big blue loose leaves sitting on my desk at the airport. And he said to me, what's that? And I said, well, that's what we use to, you know, check who's coming in. And he said, this is America? And you have a book? In Japan, we have computers. What's wrong with your country? I was mortified. This was around 1972, 1973. And back then, Japan took its immigration laws so seriously that they geared up and put computers at their ports of entry. And here I am with a loose-leaf binder. And this is the United States of America superpower. We were supposed to clear passengers in a minute. Now, if you had a problem with somebody coming in, you could send them for what we call secondary inspection, where they could be searched, <clears throat> even strip searched if necessary. They could get their suitcase and go through the suitcase and see whether people were lying to you. But I had bosses who would literally sit behind you with a stopwatch And at the end of your shift, they'd come up and say, Mike, you are averaging a minute and 10 seconds. I I wanted under one minute, and you sent too many people to secondary. Resolve the issue on the line. Well, the only resolving we did was to admit somebody. If we weren't going to admit them, we had to send them to secondary. So the message was clear. Don't try to block too many people from coming in. And I asked one of the old-timers, what's that about? And he said, well, the Chamber of Commerce, the the travel industries, the hotel businesses, they don't like when we stop customers. Customers. 
And I thought I thought we were standing watch on the border to keep out criminals. And back then, this was long before we had the problem with 9-11, but we already were seeing American airplanes being hijacked to the Middle East. In one case, a Navy sailor was thrown off an airplane after he was shot in the head by hijackers who took that airplane to the Middle East and set it on fire. But we were slow to figure it out, and so many Americans said, oh, this is America, we'll never be attacked here. <clears throat> sure thing. I spent a year doing the marriage interviews. I was an inspector sitting in that booth for four years. It was a tough job. Sometimes you'd sit there for 15 hours. You had a 20-minute lunch break. I love the conservatives who talk about how easy civil servants have it. Sitting in that booth, 15 hours, 20-minute lunch break, lots of luck. You try it. And then I was given an opportunity to do the interviews in conjunction with marriage interviews. We uncovered a marriage fraud ring. I was happy to do that. We prosecuted and successfully convicted an attorney. He was Chinese-American, arranging marriages between Puerto Rican lesbian hookers and Chinese crewmen who jumped ship frequently that couldn't even speak the same language. And then in 1975, I finally became a special agent. And my very first case, because I rotated through all the squads, my very first case, I had a young man, well, not the, yeah, it was actually my first case as, as a frauds investigator, a young man from Israel came in with an altered visa. The visa was originally issued for single entry, and he had already come in on that visa previously. So he changed the word, or somebody did, from one to two entries and changed the year of expiration by one year so it appeared that this visa was still valid. But under a black light, it lit up like Times Square. You could see that it had been altered. So he was arrested by the inspector. My boss called me in. He said, Mike, Take a statement. If he's not willing to talk to you, he's protected by the Fifth Amendment. He could say, I don't want to talk to you. Give him the Miranda warning. And let's see how you do without a senior partner sitting, standing at your side. Because during that first year while you're in training, you have classes that you attend in the office. I had already been to Border Patrol Academy for when I was an inspector, so I got additional training to be an agent. And then two or three days out of the week, I'd be out on the street but with a senior partner. He was there to mentor me, to evaluate me, because during that first year, you can be fired without cause. So during that first year, they want to make sure you have what it takes to be an effective agent. If you have to chase somebody, do you chase them for five blocks or do you give up after one block? Do you come to work dressed properly? Are the questions you ask on target? Do you know what you're doing? Can you qualify at the pistol range? It was an evaluation period. You got a lot of good advice from these senior uh, agents who would explain to you, how to do things better and safer and more effectively. <clears throat> if you got through that first year, then you became a special agent and, and, and you began your career. So just as I was getting to the beginning of my career, we were wrapping up that first year and I passed all my tests, everything was going well. They said, you know, this will be your first opportunity to do something without a senior partner. The guy is in our lockups, so you're not out on the street, take a deposition. And I gave the guy the Miranda warning. He was young, about a year younger than I was, clean-shaven, very polite, in great physical condition, spoke impressively well. Uh, his English level, that is to say, was impressive. And then he kept calling Israel Palestine, which made the hair on my neck stand up. And then I found out he was from the West Bank. And then I asked him to describe which branch of the military he'd been in in Israel. And he locked up all four wheels, refused to talk to me. I brought in a translator. He said he couldn't understand me, couldn't understand the translator either in Hebrew, so she flipped to Arabic, and then he said, I'm not talking to you. I contacted the Israeli consulate. They came down while they were interviewing him because in those days the aliens that were being held in detention didn't wear the orange jumpsuits. 
that they uh, they now wear, they wore their street clothes that they were arrested with. And his shirt didn't sit right. There was a bulge somehow. He didn't want to take the shirt off. I gave him no choice. In custody, anyone is subject to strip search for security purposes. And then I realized why he didn't want me to see his shirt. Because then the shirt was a pocket. And then the pocket was a piece of paper that had a handwritten schematic with a lot of Arabic writing. Now, I couldn't read it, but I figured that the Israelis who came down at, at my request, because this was their citizen, so they're certainly entitled to interview their citizen, when they looked at the diagram, they, their complexion matched the paper. They became pale as ghosts, and they said, do you know what this is? I said, no. It's a schematic of an oil refinery in Israel. It's a plan to blow it up. Think about that. That was my introduction to the nexus between terrorism and immigration. I worked closely with the Israeli National Police for the balance of my career. And in one case, in fact, they identified an Israeli who had come to the United States. He was a fugitive wanted for murder back in Israel. I arrested him. He went back to Israel, stood trial, was convicted of murder, and was sentenced to a lengthy jail sentence. This isn't about Mexico. This nonsense about once we secure the Mexican border is the lie that you're being told by politicians from both parties because they want the situation to continue. The immigration system really isn't a law enforcement system. It's a delivery system. It delivers an unlimited supply of cheap, exploitable labor. There's no compassion exploiting foreign workers, and there's certainly no compassion in displacing American and lawful immigrant workers. Think about that. Or suppressing the wages of hardworking Americans. Think about that. It also provides an unlimited supply of foreign tourists. That's why even after 9-11, when they warned about the visa process, I just read it to you. We had 26 visa waiver countries on 9-11. President Trump made Poland number 39. That's the only one that he added. But right after 9-11, George W. Bush added many countries to the list. We went from 26 to 39. It should be zero. Does that show a commitment to American national security or a commitment to the people who buy the politicians. I'm telling you, get that lottery ticket. Just think of how many people you could buy. What an amazing opportunity to buy politicians. For that money, believe me, they're for sale or rent. Same difference. I used to raid sweatshops. The conditions under which the people work in the sweatshops sickened me. And I want to be clear, when I hear people talk to me about those invaders coming across the border, cool it. Many people are desperate, okay? Now, we don't know who's who without a scorecard, and if they come across without their documents, we have no scorecard. We have to presume that many of them are criminals or fugitives, but the reality, many of them are just coming here to try to support their families. The problem is we're a country of limited resources, and every job they take is a job an American isn't taking. And when you hear this crap about the work Americans won't do, you're either a fool or an idiot. You have a choice. Americans will do any job but for a living wage. My father was a construction worker. He was a tradesman. I have more respect for tradesmen than I do for pencil neck geek bankers. You know what Bob Hope said about bankers, don't you? He said bankers will lend you money, but only after you proved that you didn't need it in the first place. I like to say that when bankers tell you that they have a product, I didn't know that three-card Monty was a product, Okay. If you look at construction workers and how dangerous and filthy uh, that work is, they're out there frying their tails in the summer, freezing their tails in the winter, and construction is more dangerous than law enforcement. I literally carried my dad off his job his last day of work. He was dying of lung cancer at age 57, 
because he worked in the Navy shipyards during the Second World War because he wanted to contribute to the war effort. Because of the Sullivan brothers, he couldn't be uh, drafted. He couldn't enlist, rather, because his brother was already in the Army Air Corps. And many of his buddies were the same as my dad. They'd be up there at O-Dark 30 preparing to do their work, and you're going to tell me that there's work Americans won't do? You know, the meatpacking industry... 20 years ago, paid $18 an hour. Good paycheck. Many people that worked in those plants were able to put their kids through school on that paycheck. You know that the last year or two, the average pay for people working in those meat processing plants was somewhere around $12 an hour. How do we go from $18 an hour 20 or 25 years ago to $12 now? It's not only that they didn't increase the money according to inflation, they actually cut it nearly in half. Why? Because they started to hire illegal aliens, fired the Americans who worked there. The work that is done in in the slaughterhouses and the meatpacking industry is dangerous, it's filthy, it's backbreaking. It's a tough, tough job. And to fire loyal American employees to displace them by foreign workers? The Atlantic is a very left-leaning magazine. They did an amazing story about the tomato farms and the uh, agricultural workers who work on the farms. Those workers, the illegal aliens, are treated worse than livestock. They're made to sleep in the back of camper trucks. They take cold showers, and if they're lucky, they might get two meals a day. And very often, their bosses do not allow them bathroom breaks. So what do they do? Well, they use the fields as a bathroom. And if you wonder why we frequently get various diseases, part of the reason is that compassionate of course not and we're always told we need those foreign workers to pick the fruit otherwise god knows what a head of lettuce would cost these are the excuses we hear from a country that has become increasingly greedy and increasingly less compassionate i remember arresting an illegal alien who was about 16 years old working in a grocery store this poor kid was so emaciated he looked like an escapee from a, from a concentration camp. You could see his ribs. And he was scared to death. He was 16 years old. He wasn't my enemy. But the law required that I arrest people who are here illegally. I took an oath. That oath means you do what you're told to do, and if you can't do it, then you resign. And the fact that he was here working that way, I felt terrible for him. But, again, I took an oath. But on the way into my office, I stopped at a kosher deli. Where else would a kid from Brooklyn go, a Jewish kid from Brooklyn? I bought him an overstuffed roast beef sandwich and a knish and a soda. He inhaled the sandwich, and he was all emotional, and he said that was the most amazing food he ever ate. told me in Spanish, but I knew enough Spanish to understand what he was saying. He was attracted to come to the United States because of the hiring practices of of, 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 of the employers. And do you know how many people die in the desert or get shot? The women get raped. They get robbed by the smugglers. They're among the biggest lowlifes you're ever going to encounter, human traffickers. And when you have sanctuary cities that protect illegal aliens, so-called, from ICE today, what you're really protecting are the crooked lawyers who engage in scams involving immigration, crooked employers who hire illegal aliens, drug organizations that send their people here because... They want to make sure that nobody steals either their drugs or their money. So those people come here illegally. They smuggle the drugs and they smuggle the people into our country. 
That's why New York, with its biggest, most sophisticated police department, was still the place that El Chapo Guzman, the most prolific and violent Mexican drug trafficker, set up in New York as a major hub for the East Coast. Why would you do it in New York City with all those cops? Because we have sanctuary policies. Think about that. The irony is El Chapo was put on trial in the Eastern District of New York, a stone's throw from where Chuck Schumer lives, the man who wanted a law that would make trespassing on critical infrastructure a federal crime with a five-year jail sentence. But for aliens who trespass on America, you deserve citizenship. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. I broke my ankle chasing another illegal alien across an onion field in upstate New York. A bunch of us fell into an irrigation ditch. With the black soil running in the heat of the moment, we missed seeing the ditch. We dropped about seven feet into a hole in the ground. It was like being buried alive. Thankfully, there was no water there. We probably all would have drowned. When they pulled me out of the ditch, my ankle was the size of my shoulder. And the guy I was chasing was caught by another agent, and he demanded to be brought to see me to apologize. And believe it or not, he did. He came up to me, and in Spanish, said, Do siento, senor. I'm sorry, sir. And then in Spanish, he said to me, If I didn't run from you, you wouldn't have chased me. And if you didn't chase me, you wouldn't have been hurt. I feel terrible for you. Was that man my enemy? What we're witnessing around the world is the push for globalism. Victims of globalism are the average people from every country. The destruction of wages, the destruction of the middle class. So that you have a growing group of billionaires, billionaires, and they want still more money, more, more money. You know, I understand the guy that's poverty-stricken and steals a loaf of bread and a quart of milk in a store. And if I was a cop, and we've seen these stories all the time where the cop doesn't arrest that guy but actually fills up that grocery bag and pays for it out of his own pocket because anybody who steals a loaf of bread is truly desperate, needs help, needs help. But imagine the guy that's worth a billion dollars and still cancels the health insurance for his employees. That man needs free room and board in a cage. That's what we're up against today. The super powerful, you know, might makes right. Well, who's mightier than a guy that's worth more than some countries? You have Google that's now offering to pay the C's for DACA and also demanding of Joe Biden that he open up the doors and it's let America be flooded with foreign high-tech workers. What are the Americans, chopped liver? I met with Bob Goodlatte. I've mentioned Bob on my program before. Bob, if you're listening, I hope I piss you off because you piss me off. He was the Republican chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He was very kind with his time. We had a 30-minute meeting. And he told me how much more he, will, than he knew about immigration than I would ever learn because, after all, he's an immigration lawyer. Well, if you look up Bob Goodlatte, He made quite a bit of money with H-1B visas, and therefore, not surprisingly, when he sat in Congress, he tried to push every bill for unlimited H-1B visas. Why? Because if you provide the visas, you're providing work for the lawyers. This is an employment program for lawyers. And then he told me how his son would love to bring in tens of thousands of brilliant Indian programmers, and I said, you know, my first wife died tragically at the age of 33 of cancer. She was a brilliant programmer. Many of her friends had comparable credentials. She was a Phi Beta Kappa graduate with an MBA in computer science and a member of the National Math Honor Society. I said, those people today are being displaced by people from India. 
What are those American workers? Chopped liver? I thought as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, you'd have at least passing concern about the plight of American high-tech workers and American students who are busting their tails to get the education to hopefully get jobs that you want to give to people from India. Can you explain it to me? He said, Mr. Cutler, our meeting is done. And it was. And it was. <clears throat> and then we're told, well, if you want to secure the borders, you're anti-immigrants. No, actually, it's the immigrants who are most likely to be killed or raped or robbed by criminal aliens from all over the world because those criminal thugs live among the people that they are most similar to because it's what's comfortable and convenient for them. They like the food. They like the music. They like to be able to communicate. They like the companionship of the women. And the victims are those residents of those immigrant communities, and they come from all over the world. They come from Asia and Africa. They come from Europe. They come from Latin America. They come from the Caribbean. It doesn't matter, folks. Human nature is human nature. So in order to thwart the effort of enforcing the law, a concerted effort was launched. And in fact, right after 9-11, I was called by both Sheila Jackson Lee, certainly a Democrat, as well as Republicans, to testify at hearings about the nexus between immigration and terrorism. I testified at the hearing where it was discovered that two of the dead terrorists, including the ringleader, Mohammed Atta, were granted authorization to go to flight school six months after 9-11. Flight school. In 2006-2007, the wind started to shift. It turns out that the Chamber of Commerce said to the Congress, we have a crisis on the border. You know what the crisis was? We were trying to secure the border. And they said, you're keeping out all these workers. We want to hire those workers. They're cheap. They help us profit more. We've got to build up our profits. America will do better if our corporations make more money. The hell with the American workers, of course, folks. And then what do foreign workers do? They send money home. Last year, Mexico reported receiving over $40 billion in remittances. $40 billion. $40 billion. Think of all those zeros. <clears throat> That's the visible money. That's money that when you add in the multiplier effect that every dollar generates another $3 in the economy, well, if you remove $40 billion, you're removing $120 billion. And it went to Mexico, and that's the visible money. That's money that wasn't earned by Americans. Think about that one. Not earned by Americans. How brilliant. So we're watching homelessness go up. Why? I'll tell you why. Because housing becomes more expensive as more people look to find a place to live, supply and demand. Wages are declining because the more you flood the labor pool with foreign workers, the lower the wages get. So wages are going down. Housing is going up. <clears throat> As those two intersect, you wind up with homelessness. In the name of compassion. Never forget, we're being compassionate. We've lost our minds. We've lost our minds. I worked narcotics investigations, and the level of violence is off the chart because the violence you see in, in other countries is being visited in our communities. <clears throat> and now, of course, with the defund police, what does that look like? Sanctuary cities refuse to honor detainers. There's a guy who runs over somebody, he's drunk. We lodge a detainer, let's deport him. Oh, no, and Joe Biden said, drunk driving is not a crime. Where's Mothers Against Drunk Drivers screaming out? I haven't seen them in a while. We've had cases of people who've killed people, and then they release them, and they kill more people. There was one young girl in, in, in Maryland 
who was believed by members of MS-13, and I began investigating MS-13 around 1992. They were a tiny problem, and the influx of massive numbers of unaccompanied minors swelled their ranks exponentially across the country. They're about as violent as any group you've ever seen, this side of terrorism. Their slogan, kill, rape, rob, control, and they do. And mostly, who are they killing, raping, and robbing? Latino children in school. Think about that one. Some as young as 10 years of age. Think about that one. Young girl was believed by the members of MS-13 who were indicted and charged with conspiracy to commit murder, attempted murder, and several other crimes, conspiracy to commit robberies. ICE lodged a detainer, which said, hold these people. We want to deport them if you're going to release them. They ignored the detainer, of course, because they have to protect the immigrants from evil immigration agents. So they released these two guys. Remember that charge of attempted murder? Well, this time they didn't attempt. They did it. They decided that that girl had spoken to the police, so they killed her with baseball bats and machetes. But they were protected from immigration. Who protected that girl? I could go over thousands of cases like that. Thousands of cases like that. And by the way, if you're worried about the people who are here illegally, you don't want to see them arrested, any illegal alien who cooperates with law enforcement to identify criminals, identify terrorists, can be granted permission to remain in the United States. Everybody's happy. Everybody wins. You don't hear that, though, from the governors of sanctuary states or the mayors of sanctuary cities. In New York, Governor Cuomo provides driver's licenses to illegal aliens. I started out talking about the threat posed by people with driver's licenses. And adding to that, he does not provide the information contained in motor vehicle records to immigration authorities without a subpoena. One of the first things you do if you're doing an investigation, if you find yourself following a car, is you call on the license plate. Why? Well, you want to know who owns the car. You want to know if there's outstanding warrants. Maybe the car is stolen. Maybe the guy has a history of firearms. I remember one surveillance. We were following a car up at, uh, in Queens. I was with the drug task force. And we got an urgent call. I was a DEA agent. So I got an urgent call on the radio. Are you following a vehicle with the following license plate? And we said, yes. Well, it turned out the guy we were following was a Colombian drug cartel member. He had called down to his boss in Florida and asked the boss in Florida if it would be okay for him to take the submachine gun that was on the floor behind him in his car and spray the vehicles behind him. He told his boss, I don't know if they're cops or the opposition, but I'd love to kill them all. The boss said, no, don't do it. That conversation was monitored by an FBI team. They called their office. They had nobody in Queens at the time. They called DEA, and DEA reached out to us. We got a local police car to pull the car over, and sure enough, there was the machine gun. Because the license plate was run, they were able to figure out who was who, what was what, and it linked back to that phone number. Because in those days, the phones were actually built into the car, the cell phones. Today... If an immigration agent calls in a license plate, it comes back blocked. I was trained to use the computer to come up with rap sheets and license plates. We had to be certified by the state of New York. The state of New York will not cooperate with any immigration enforcement. Now, let's understand this. New York was hammered the worst on 9-11. New York has been the target of terror attacks more frequently than any other locale in the United States. Plot after plot. 
we had the, the tourists run over with a truck on the West Side Highway just a couple of years ago, two blocks from, nine, from the, the Twin Towers. We had the first World Trade Center bombing. We had other individuals arrested who were planning to blow up the subway system. It goes on and on and on. <clears throat> the 9-11 Commission was crystal clear about driver's licenses. And yet you have politicians saying, oh, we don't have to listen to those laws. We can selectively enforce the laws. Well, try that with your taxes. If you buy that winning lottery ticket, you're going to have to pay taxes, so it's going to cut down on the number of politicians you can buy. We now have the best government money can buy, don't we? If I accomplish nothing else in discussing this with you, what I really want to convey to all of you is that we are in for a rough ride. China is licking its chops. Iran licking its chops. 75 million or 74 million people voted for President Trump. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm not one of those guys who always thought Trump was right. I I have a friend who's a retired general, army general. I, I have jokingly said that I'm convinced that if Donald Trump walked into his house and relieved himself on his dining room table, he would call it a centerpiece. Well, I don't belong to that school. I'm happy he was the president. I, I'll tell you right up front, they voted for him. I don't know what happened with this election. I'm not going to speculate. But I can tell you that I think that it was not a smart idea to hold the rally because right now America, folks, is kind of like a parched forest. Think about a forest that has had no rain in a year. Think about all the Americans who are suffering cabin fever on steroids, locked down, locked in, um, afraid that they won't be able to feed their families, pay the mortgage, pay tuition for their kids' school. Our society has been disrupted by COVID in ways that we never could have conceived just a year ago. We're not able to communicate effectively. We're wearing these masks. And now it turns out that Google and Amazon and all these other mega groups are conspiring to shut down the First Amendment. I hate hate speech. I'm Jewish. My family was decimated because of hate speech, because of the Holocaust. But if you listen to Alan Dershowitz, a brilliant constitutional law professor, it's protected speech by the First Amendment. And the problem with saying we're going to outlaw hate speech is how do you determine what hate speech is? And don't you really want to know who the haters are? The best way to know who the haters are is let them spew their crap, and then you know who you're dealing with instead of driving it all underground. But to protect us, they're going to be the arbiters. They're going to become the uh, ministry of truth right out of the pages of George Orwell. George Orwell, 1984. Well, forget the calendar. This really isn't 2021. This is 1984, isn't it? It's absolutely mind-boggling that people can be so foolish and so easily deceived. He had a couple of really great quotes. He said, in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Well, are we not seeing that? He said, "Who who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Think of the culture wars that we're having, the cancel culture. America is this terrible country. America did terrible things. People do terrible things. And we've learned over time and we've made appropriate corrections. And think about all the battles that were fought by civil rights leaders, by the Tuskegee Airmen. I had the privilege of working for the Tuskegee Airmen at Brooklyn College. I was working to help put myself through school and take care of my mom after my dad died. It turned out the guy I was working for was one of the Tuskegee Airmen. 
George Bing is a, is a hero. The stories he told me blew my mind. But if you're going to deny history, then all those heroic stories of people who fought repression and segregation and, frankly, stupidity and hatred, they're being erased along with the evil that they had to combat. Those heroes of the civil rights movement are role models for everybody. But what role models are they if we erase history? Why would we not want to champion what they did, celebrate what they did, make people understand how individuals can make such a profound difference? But again, who controls the past controls the future, right? Think about that. It's a very um, dangerous era. In fact, Orwell addressed history. The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. That's what he said. And then he said political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure win. As I'm saying this, do you not see where we are today? Do you not see this going on today? He said that if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they don't want to hear. Tell them what they don't want to hear. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. He also said, power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together in new shapes of your own choosing. And that's what we're seeing today, isn't it? Isn't it? So we've really got to stand up to this. And we need to understand that the enforcement of our immigration laws isn't about bigotry, but about protecting ourselves. I arrested a guy working illegally in a factory. He seemed like a nice enough guy. The owner of the factory was upset that I arrested him. The guy falsely claimed to be an American, said that he had naturalized. When we couldn't find a record, I brought him in on the suspicion that he was here illegally. Well, it turned out that not only was he here illegally, but this guy um, had been convicted of manslaughter, or homicide rather, by plea bargain, which means God only knows what he really did. He spent a number of years in jail. He was deported, came back illegally, illegally, and uh, was prosecuted for unlawful reentry after deportation. That's a felony. He escaped from a federal penitentiary, and we found him working at a glass factory in Brooklyn. The owner almost fainted because he trusted the guy to the point that he had this guy, this convicted murderer, gave him the keys to the factory, had him open for him when he was late getting to work, and locked up if he needed to leave early, and had the guy sleep at his house and have dinner with his family. And he said, I have two young girls. God only knows what this guy was capable of. I said, I don't know. Maybe he never did anything else wrong. Maybe. But he lied through his teeth, gave you false names, escaped from a federal penitentiary. Should he be shielded from law enforcement? It's remarkable that after the Capitol was attacked, Gates went up immediately. It didn't take 24 hours for those politicians to figure this one out. And suddenly the politicians in Washington didn't say, let's defund the Capitol Police. Oh, no, let's bring in the National Guard. When we had the riots during the summer and Trump said, let's bring in the National Guard, they didn't want to do it. In fact, hotels refused to provide lodging for the National Guard. You remember that? I sure as hell do. National Guard, what are we doing? Now Congress was attacked, and we have more National Guardsmen in Washington than we have in Afghanistan and Pakistan combined. Think about that one, or I'm sorry, Iraq, Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan combined. What in the world are we doing? What are we doing? And they put up that fence lickety split. The same politicians who don't want a border wall and who want to defund the police, but not the Capitol Police. 
What happened at the Capitol was horrific. There are images I won't forget. But is it any less a crime when a person's business is burned to the ground? Perhaps that business was owned by or started by his or her grandfather or grandmother. It's been a fixture in their family and a source of pride for generations. And it's burned to the ground, and people are told, oh, these were, non, these were peaceful, nonviolent demonstrations. You've had reporters reporting on that as the fires are burning behind them and people are being killed. Dead is dead, whether you're killed by a drug dealer, killed by a drunk driver, killed by a, a terrorist. You're no less dead. If the country can't provide for the safety of its own citizens, then nothing it does is worthwhile. As a parent, my number one responsibility was the safety of my children to create for them a wholesome environment so they could be nurtured, they could be successful. I'm incredibly proud that I have four kids who are all college graduates, graduated with honors. I didn't do quite so well uh, in terms of grades. Although I had lost my parents, I was a mess. And my mother only had a fourth-grade education and my dad an eighth-grade education. That's the American dream, that every generation would do better than the generation that preceded it. That hope has pretty much gone out the window. It's not about xenophobia, folks. It's about understanding resources. When we make parties, we have to take into account how big the place is where we're going to hold the party and how big our budget is. We start out with more names than we can invite, and then we whittle the list down. The names that come off the list aren't the people that we hate. It's just the people that we can't afford to invite. We need to think of immigration much the same way. And we need to be able to honestly put American citizens first. There's nothing wrong with that. Parents put their children first. Countries should put their citizens first. And politicians should remember the oaths of office that they took to defend the Constitution and to maybe make some kind of an effort to keep the promises they made to their constituents when they ran for office in the first place. Wouldn't that be a unique set of circumstances? We are the employers of our elected representatives. They are our employees. When I look at a Barbara Boxer, who now is registering as a Chinese agent and was a member of Congress or the Senate, you have to wonder when her relationship, quote-unquote, with China began, because she's working with a surveillance group that keeps an eye on the Muslims in China who are being sent to forced labor camps where the women are being forced to be sterilized. Barbara Boxer, the woman who told the leader in the military, don't call me ma'am, you call me senator. Frankly, folks, I would have called her Babs, but that's just me. We have to pay attention. Let's hope for the best with Joe Biden. I hope he's successful, because if he is, then we'll do okay. But of course, we have to figure out what constitutes success, don't we? Please check out my articles at Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com. Consider joining Team DML. I do podcasts for Team DML, dmlnews.com. And please stay involved, folks. Please remember that democracy is not a spectator sport. Have those conversations with your neighbors and your friends, but keep them grounded. In fact, get away from the personalities. The law, the facts, common sense, and morality are all on our side. See you next week. Stay well.